Our sermon text is uh, Romans chapter 6. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 12, although really the entirety of Romans 6 would be uh, quite useful um, for what we're thinking about tonight. I'll just uh, walk us through parts of verses 1 through 12 and leave you to read the rest of the chapter this week and think about how that also applies. So Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 12. This is the word of Almighty God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ, uh, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. This is the word of our God. We've been thinking uh, about baptism for two weeks now. Um, I started wondering a little bit, am I spending too much time on this? And the, the elders last week didn't seem to think so. So that's encouraging to me at least. But uh, we, we do have at least two more weeks, possibly three more weeks on the subject of baptism. And when I reflect that over the past uh, eight years, I have only preached occasionally on this subject um, I think it's okay that we spend this time. We've spent two weeks on the question of mode. And what I've been hoping to show us with the question of mode is that Scripture, uh, we have to draw our conclusions by implication rather than explicit command when it comes to the, the way in which we apply the water. Um, there are, in the narrative passages... No clear statements about what version, uh, as we would think of the mode question, is used, right? People are baptized, but as I hope we saw two weeks ago, there's no clear sight of what was done that was called baptism. 
Um, not when we're honest with the text and the words themselves. Uh, there are then two types of passages that might help us think about the mode question. Uh, one type are passages that talk about baptism, other types of baptisms. Uh, and that's what we focused on last week, that not uh, far from being uh, that the word baptismo or bapto always means to immerse. Actually, it's quite clear that the majority of times in Scripture that we find this word and the ideas that are connected to this word, it's actually sprinkling or pouring. Uh, and that there are few passages that are necessitating us to see it as a ceremony of immersion. Uh, and so uh, that would indicate something but again, isn't a direct statement of how we're supposed to do the, the baptism itself. Then there's another type of passage uh, that is talking directly about baptism uh, and yet isn't focused on the mode, it's focused on the meaning. And uh, I, I want to be clear about that because we're looking at one of those tonight, Romans 6, and there are people who make an argument uh, dear brothers and sisters who make an argument for immersion based on Romans 6, and uh, it's worth engaging in that. That's not my goal to engage with tonight. Um, what I want us to consider tonight is that those passages don't tend to be, they're not how-to guides for baptism. They're about what baptism means, and that's what I want to focus on tonight, what baptism means. Uh, but if, if you take everything I've just said over the past few minutes together, then I think what we have to conclude about baptism is what Westminster concludes about baptism's mode. And that is that immersion isn't necessary, and that sprinkling and pouring are very biblical. And then, if we, if we can acknowledge all of that, then we can say, uh, not that it's an irrelevant discussion, but that people who are immersed and sprinkled are both legitimately baptized uh, because scripture doesn't give the clear uh, the clear directive only by implication so i want to think about romans chapter 6 tonight romans chapter 6 is not a how-to guide for baptism but it references baptism and so it's an important text it's an important text because it helps us think through what does baptism mean what does baptism mean? So, if we're, if we're thinking about what baptism means, um, obviously that's going to affect how we make use of our baptisms, how we view what our baptism is. Um, and it may even come into play when we talk, Lord willing, after Christmas, about uh, who should receive baptism. But I want to start here with uh, what does it mean? What are we being pointed to? What does it signify? Uh, what does the imagery of baptism, what is it supposed to cause us to consider? So let's look at Romans 6 tonight. Uh, and uh, Romans 6 starts with a very clear statement from Paul. His, his purpose in this is to answer the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that flows right out of what he has just concluded from the previous three chapters, let's say, of Romans. Uh, but especially Romans 5, which concluded with this thought. Um, that 
where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Or some uh, have argued, we could almost translate this, super abounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is making his phenomenal argument that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not of works, lest we should boast. And so with chapter 6, he asks the question, he anticipates the, the devil's advocates at the Church of Rome saying, well then, who cares? If I'm not saved by my works, if keeping the ceremonial law doesn't save me, if keeping the moral law doesn't contribute to my salvation, if being baptized doesn't save me, if taking the Lord's Supper doesn't contribute to my salvation, if church attendance doesn't contribute to my salvation, if these things do not save me, then who cares what I do? I'm just going to keep living the way I was. I'm going to sin and let grace abound. In fact, what, what a favor I'm paying to God. If grace abounds much more where there is more sin, uh, if that's the case, then by sinning, I'm kind of giving God an opportunity to look even better, to shower his grace even more. That's the kind of devil's advocate question that's raised. And Paul's response is, may it never be, may it never be said that we should sin so that grace might abound. But what is his argument against this? Now, there are a lot of things you could target here, but, but tonight, of course, I want to pinpoint the fact that one of Paul's thoughts is that certainly not, certainly not let sin abound that grace might abound all the more because you've been baptized. He says to the church in Rome, Weren't you baptized? And in essence, he's raising the challenge. Was your baptism a mere formality? Something that you just went through so that you could join the church? Did it have any real meaning, any real significance, any spiritual uh, emphasis at all? Really what Paul is saying is, you are a hypocrite if you have been baptized and shrug off sin, just keep sinning as if it doesn't matter. You're a hypocrite. And so he, he draws their attention to their baptisms. I think it's amazing how many, uh, and sad, if we were to look at the church in America and, and ask the question uh, of uh, baptized members of churches across America, when was the last time you thought about your baptism? I, I wonder how sad the results would be. I think for many, it's simply uh, just an event in the past. Maybe something tacked on to a moment of professing faith. Or maybe something that uh, just happens to have been the case because you were in the church and, or wanted to be a member of the church or whatever the thing might be uh, that we don't think about our baptisms. And yet Paul in Romans 6 is telling us that when we're tempted to live in sin, 
we need to think about our baptisms and what the baptism meant. It wasn't a mere formality. What did it mean? So what does baptism mean? I think three passages in the New Testament really point to the spiritual realities that baptism points us to. One I've reflected on already in this series, Titus 3 verse 5. Titus 3 verse 5 we read, as many of you know, um, the, that wonderful passage uh, where we read, uh, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So baptism points to regeneration of the heart. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been born again. A second very important passage that talks about the meaning of baptism is found in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 I believe it's verses 26 and 27. I'm seeing that I lost my bookmark to this, so give me a a moment to find this. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And there we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if Titus is telling us that baptism should make us reflect on regeneration, the new birth, Galatians 3 is telling us that our baptisms ought to make us realize that we've been adopted. Uh, And uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this tonight, but you can... You can go and research the, the use of baptismal rites before Christ, d- during uh, that era leading up to Christ coming in the flesh. Uh, the Jews used baptisms to bring uncircumcised people into a kind of uh, partial membership in the synagogue. You're not really a member of the synagogue because you're not circumcised, but you'll feel better about giving us your money if you feel like you're slightly closer to being a part of us. So there's this baptismal rite um, of inclusion. See, it's a, it's a type of inclusion in the synagogue, even though you're not fully brought in as a Jew. Um, but it was also used by various uh, kinds of uh, cults and groups throughout the, the Roman world at that time. Various types of baptismal rites. And often with the emphasis of inclusion into the group, and sometimes specifically of adoption into the group. So, uh, so Paul is playing off of that in Galatians 3. He's saying, yeah, our baptisms talk about our adoption in Christ Jesus. So we have regeneration that we should think about. We have adoption. And then Romans 6 comes in. And it really... It, connects the the order of salutis, the order of salvation from regeneration, that first thing, the new birth, uh, all the way to adoption, and then presses us beyond that. So as we look at Romans 6, 
two things especially are emphasized that have to do with union with Christ. Notice that again in Romans chapter 6. He says, as many of you as were baptized, uh, uh, were baptized into Christ. You were baptized into Christ. Remember the baptismal formula. To baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptized into the Trinity, singular, and each of their names listed. So, uh, into Christ. There is a union with Christ that is testified to by uh, our baptism. But we could think of that, that super generically. A lot of people claim to like Jesus. A lot of people may be okay being part of the Jesus religion. But what does that mean? And Paul doesn't let us think of it generically. If you're baptized into Christ, into union with Christ, what are you united to? You're united to the whole Christ. The whole Christ. Not just united to him as your teacher or something like that, but united to the whole Christ, especially the whole Christ who died and who rose again. And that's what Paul shows us here. You were united into the name, baptized into the name of Christ. Uh, as many of you as were baptized into the name of Christ were baptized into his death, verse 3. And so think first of his death, his death, which is the sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. It's the sacrifice to bear all the sins of his people on the tree. It's his death in which he experienced hell and separation from the father so that his people never have to. And, and so think about what Paul is emphasizing here. Uh, again, the, the comment is, you know, I'll just keep on sinning that grace may abound. And, he, and Paul says, remember that you were baptized? That, that means you're united to the it pictures. It's the pointing to the spiritual reality of united to his, uh, united to Christ, united to his death. And so if you're going to say, oh, I'm just going to go on sinning that grace may abound. It's almost like saying, well, it's no big deal. It's just a little bit more hell for you to bear on the cross. It's just a little bit more suffering, Christ, for you to experience in your death. I'm united to you in your death. You took the wages of sin, my death, upon yourself. It's no big deal if I add a little more to that, right? That's what we seem to be saying. And Paul, I think, is, is not too subtly hinting that thought. Do you really think it doesn't matter if you go on sinning that grace may abound? You're united to his death. But of course, there's more emphasis there as well. Because he'll say, the one who has died, has died to the taskmaster, the slave master, the owner. Uh, if you're a slave and you die, uh, whatever abusive master you had beforehand, uh, what good is that master going to accomplish standing over your grave yelling at you to go to work? It, it doesn't work like that. And so there's this aspect also of, of him saying your union with Christ in Christ's death uh, 
means that you are no longer alive to be a slave in that sense. But of course, then he moves on as well. It's not that we've just died. We've died to be raised into eternal life. And so we're also united to him in his resurrection, Paul says. Um, Knowing this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And the life he has, he lives to to God. Excuse me. Uh, Verses 8 through 10. Uh, And so Paul's saying, not just that you're dead to the old taskmaster, but you're alive in Christ. You have life. Where before you had the wages of sin, which is death, now you have uh, the promise and the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, But what life is that? Uh, Again, I've already said this, but we really need to realize that Paul is saying this, that the implication of being united to Christ in his resurrection means that now we are not slaves of sin anymore. We have a new life, but there's also a then application, implication. The now implication is now we are no longer slaves of sin. We have a new life. The then application is, then we will live in eternal joy in the new heavens and the new earth where only righteousness dwells. So your baptism points to that. It points to your union with Christ in glory, which you will experience uh, in, on the last day. But even now, it represents you not being a slave of sin. So, again, to think about... Paul's uh, sparring partners, the devil's advocate there. Uh, I'll continue in sin that grace may abound. In light of being united to Christ, the resurrected Christ, it's almost as if we are saying, well, I prefer the slavery. I prefer the slavery to the confinement of the robe of righteousness. I prefer hell, not heaven. That's what it's like for the Christian to say, I'm just going to go on sinning that grace may abound. I, I prefer hell, not heaven. I prefer death, not life. I prefer, I prefer uh, the slave master, not the adoptive father. What an absurd thought. That's Paul's point. Your baptism ought to make you reflect on your union with Christ. So, uh, again, as we... Um, as we think about uh, Titus 3, uh, there we have regeneration pointed to as, as uh, maybe the most obvious imagery that we have with baptism, right? The washing of renewal by the Holy Spirit. Washing, that's what we think of when we see a baptism performed upon someone, right? Whether it's uh, the, the immersion of someone or the, or the pouring of water on someone's head, uh, we think of washing, And so regeneration, the new birth, comes to mind. But Paul, in essence, in Romans 6 is saying, yeah, that might be the the start of it. But what he started, he's going to continue. Uh, He regenerates you and he unites you to Christ in your effectual calling. And being united to Christ means justification by the blood 
of Christ. And that means you're united with him in his death and his life. Your sin upon him, his righteousness is yours. Uh, and, and then if we take Galatians 3 and put it in there in terms of getting the, the logical order, having been justified freely by his blood, and raised with him to newness of life, we are adopted into the household of God. So all of that, that whole work of God within the believer is the focus, the thing we're supposed to see symbolically in our baptism. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because in Romans 6, having brought us that far, he says, don't even stop there when thinking about your baptism. Uh, What do we see? Uh, Verse 10. Verse 10 we read, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And that last phrase, lives to God, is is a phrase of devotion. Meaning he lives for God. He lives unto God. The purpose of his life is for God. Or as Westminster puts it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now verse 10 is telling us that that's Christ. Christ lives for God even in heaven. He lives for the glory of the Father. But notice what Paul then does in the following verses. Uh, Verse 11. Likewise you also, likewise you also, united to Christ, reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. So Paul is saying, if you're united to Christ in his resurrection, then you're united to Christ for the purpose of a devoted life to God the Father. And a devoted life to God the Father means, therefore, do not let sin reign over you. Because a life of devotion is centered on God, not self. On obedience, not rebellion. So, Paul, having started by reminding us of our baptisms, is in essence saying... Your baptism points to your union with Christ, and that means your baptism calls on you to live in newness of life. It calls on you to pursue sanctification, uh, to uh, pursue holiness as a response to what God has done, which baptism signified. London Baptist Confession uh, has different wording Uh, to some extent, about what baptism means than Westminster. But for the most part, it's getting to the same point. And it's getting to this same point. So I thought, why not reference this part of the London Baptist Confession of 1689? Uh, And so this is just part of its answer about what is baptism. Baptism is a sign of fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into Christ, of remission of sins and of giving up to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That's pretty much been the sermon, hasn't it? That it is engrafting into him. You can 
say engrafting, or you can say union with Christ uh, in his death and his resurrection with uh, the result uh, that our sins are forgiven and with the result, the confession says, of giving up to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Westminster Larger Catechism uses a different phrase that says the same thing about our duty to walk in newness of life. It says, to be holy and only the Lord's.